0: To get started, visit realvision.com slash RVpod. Use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show.
1: Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, June 17th. 2022. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Michael Guyad, Portfolio Manager at Toroso Investments. We're going to get to Michael in just one second. But first, a quick look at what's happening in U.S. equity markets. Uh, NASDAQ is composite is the big mover on the day. One spot, 6%, up 1.6%. Uh, everything else I would call like relatively flattish. SP 500 uh, up about two tenths of 1% on the day. But I want to take a look here at the weekly numbers. This is where the action is, obviously, an eventful week, which we're going to talk about shortly. Uh, Nikkei on the week, minus over 5%. Eurostox 50, down about 4% on the week. NASDAQ on the week, uh, minus roughly 1%. One and three-quarter percent. S&P 500 off over 4% on the week. Dow Jones Industrial Average off 4%. Russell 2000 off a shade under 6% on the week, nearly 6% decline in the Russell 2K. Michael Gayad, obviously, an incredibly eventful week. The Fed hiking 75 basis points uh, to a target range of 1.5 to 1.75 on the federal funds rate. Lots of price action, lots of volatility across asset classes, fixed income, equities, and crypto especially. What's your overall frame for what's happening here? What's your big picture narrative, Michael?
2: Yeah, so a few things. The um, First of all, I... I- I was early in saying that Monday, but I do maintain this belief that I think we're probably at some kind of a near-term capitulation type of moment for both equities and bonds. Um, As much as this has been a wildly difficult and painful week, I just saw a tweet from uh, an old friend, Ryan Dietrich, uh, who noted that the uh, last time he had performance like this was pretty much at major lows, March 2020, uh, 2011, following the summer crash. And I think it was a juncture in 03. I think he mentioned March uh, March of uh, oh, oh, oh 09, rather. So as painful as it's been, uh, my framework here is very simple. Everyone's convinced that things are only going to get worse. Everyone may be right about that. It doesn't mean they have to be right tomorrow. And you've already had so much destruction and devastation beneath the surface. And there's enough uh, indicators here that would suggest you're probably at a bottoming of, of risk assets and risk-free assets, meaning treasuries. That the surprise may end up being that you end up having some positive catalyst nobody's thinking about, which could cause markets to rip higher and which would give the Fed some time to try to counter these concerns about
1: hiking rates. Yeah. So you know we started with talking about stock markets kind of jumping right to the effect over the cause let's talk about fixed income bond markets bills notes what are you seeing there how do you frame it particularly for equity investors who may not pay as much attention to the bond market uh, except when things are moving
2: yeah so so credit spreads are now widening they're not blowing out in a big way but credit spreads basically you think of it as the differential between you know poor quality issuances versus high quality risk free type of treasuries AAA a versus triple c whatever it would be the spread is widening right now usually that is consistent with risk off periods because when you have high volatility in stocks spreads widen because there's suddenly fear of default risk premiums increasing and the higher that interest rates go the more those default risk premiums uh, probably do increase because we know there's a lot of zombie companies which should no longer be around that have been uh, alive, only kept alive only because of cheap credit. Right. Now, the problem that the Fed is going to be faced with, which is why I think you're going to probably have some kind of a some kind of positive catalyst coming soon, is that the wider credit spreads get, the more default risk premiums increase, the faster that brings down inflation, probably at a speed that the Fed does not want to see. Right. Because if you were to have at some point real refinancing risk by some of these companies on higher rates to the point where these companies may not exist anymore, well, that's a deflationary shock, right? That's how you have a real deeper recession. unemployment suddenly picking up. So my point here is that I think we are nearing a, a juncture where the Fed is going to start to try to cool off risk assets, again, to buy them time. Because if it were to persist at this rate, the reality is uh, you risk a much deeper decline than what the Fed is hoping for with a soft landing-ish type of, type of future.
1: Yeah, let's let's focus a little bit on credit spreads, uh, particularly for people uh, who don't have a lot of experience in the fixed income space. Uh, we're talking about spreads uh, between, uh, for example, triple uh, B's uh, and double A credits. Give us a sense of first of all what this means, why we see these spreads rise, and what metrics you look at specifically uh, to determine where uh, where you see the benchmark being for credit spreads. Yeah, so so it's ultimately about
2: the market's perception of whether a company is going to survive or not, which is the default risk premium—the the risk of of a bankruptcy. Typically, uh, companies that issue a lot of debt and don't have necessarily the right balance sheet will be rated lower because the risk is higher, right? In terms of their ability to pay off that that liability. In the initial phase of this decline in risk assets this year, bonds sold off very aggressively. But what was odd is that you saw bonds selling off without credit spreads really widening, meaning you end up having a strange scenario where uh, it was more about duration and conservative bonds ended up doing far worse than uh, on a relative basis than high yield junk debt issuances. This second phase here seems to be more classic in that sense that now spreads are widening as bond markets uh, across the globe are still selling off and yields are rising. The Fed does not really care so much about the stock market, only to the extent that the stock market impacts the bond market. And that's something that I think a lot of people really don't uh, understand when they say they care about, the Fed cares about markets. The, what they really care about is spread movement, because if spread's wide, then that means there's liquidity that's uh, harder and harder to to get, because there's a degree of fear that's getting, getting priced into, into bond yields. And that's often where you end up having the about-face by policymakers.
1: Yeah um so let's talk a little bit when we talk about duration we talk about what's happening uh in government uh, treasury uh, markets right now i'm looking at a chart in front of me uh, this is the u s uh two year treasury yield chart uh, i 'm looking year to date boy it's it's you know this is not unexpected given what we 've seen uh, from the fomc but you're looking at about two hundred and forty Two hundred and forty basis points or so coming, uh, starting at a, the year at about uh, seventy five bips. They're about uh, trading right now at a yield of uh, three point one six. So obviously, you, you see these 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 uh, these rates rising very dramatically. The yields rising very dramatically into your treasuries. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the transmission mechanism and the impact that you see that having. Yeah, well, so it's interesting, right? Because the 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 real
2: transmission mechanism isn't really from the short end; it's from the long end, right? It's right. it's the because the, the the thirty year, which is which is which is what housing uh, mortgage rates are ultimately based off of. It's what a lot of longer finance type of uh, projects, assets are financed off off of. So when you see a real uh, spike in the long end of the curve, is where it really gets to be dangerous. Now I've used this right. line many times on Twitter before that this has been my hell, right? In the sense that. I've got these three funds. You see them in my background, Atax, Roro, Jojo. All three funds are designed to benefit from this historically proven relationship where when stocks go down and there's high volatility, treasury yields drop on the long end. Treasuries actually do well as the so-called, quote, unquote, risk-off safe haven asset. Instead, risk-off has acted like risk-on. The correlation has been pretty much one for one. The drawdown- in equities has matched and in some ways been less than the drawdown in treasuries, which is really, right. really abnormal, even from the 70s. That transmission uh, mechanism, right? How that translates ultimately into the economy is in the price of homes, right? Which I think now it's very clear we're about to see a pretty significant about face. I, I, I you know, I do a number of these spaces like you guys do, and I had a, a, a home builder analyst on earlier today. And he was saying, yeah, no, there's like there's like there's a very sudden and aggressive slowdown. The demand just suddenly dried up. And it makes sense, because now mortgage rates are so much higher than they were at the start of the year. Now, just like the saying is that the cure to high price is high price, when people talk about it for commodities, right. well, the cure for high price of cost of capital is high price for cost of capital, meaning at some point, the market is going to see this spike in yields as being an opportunity to actually bet that they go down again. Because of the sudden realization that you just killed off housing.
1: Yeah. Uh, by the way, we should talk about uh, U.S. 30-year Treasury yield uh, jumped uh, right now trading uh, on a yield basis at about 3.28%. Uh, that's up about 120 basis points uh, from the beginning of the year. So, you see uh, that, obviously, more sensitivity to the front end of the curve, uh, which is, of course, to be expected. Fed has a great deal more challenge uh, with the back end of the curve. But let's talk about the flow. Flat- well, hold on, real, real quick on that, because I think it's that's an important thing you just kind of alluded to, the, the challenge of the back end of the curve
2: with this. Yeah. Quantitative tightening, right? Because, and this I, I would argue could be a positive catalyst, which nobody's really anticipating. Mm-hmm. The Fed wants to lessen the balance sheet, right? They want to unload some of these bonds. Okay, so that's what quantitative tightening is. Well, good luck doing that with this type of a disruptive environment happening in bonds, right? They'll make it even worse. Right. So they say they're going to do a fixed amount per month. It seems very plausible to me. And I think this is actually could be a very positive catalyst if that's the case. It seems plausible to me that the Fed is going to change the way they plan on doing quantitative tightening whereby instead of a fixed amount per month, it's a range. And I think the ECB recently alluded to this idea that they're going to have a range of of the sell-off of, of their balance sheet per month. If you make it variable based on quote unquote market conditions, if the Fed were to allude to that, that would probably stabilize bonds, do a lot to stabilize bonds, because then the, the fear suddenly comes out uh, that uh, the Fed will, will add pressure to issuances when bond yields are spiking. Well, if they're going to be dynamic at the,
1: in the pace in with which they, they do QT, that would take a lot of fear out, I think. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads.
1: While we're talking about debt, I wanted to uh, take a listen to a conversation on Real Vision that touches on something that you and I talked about, uh, Michael, on our Twitter spaces. Uh, This is from a conversation called Great Trades During Tough Times, Lessons from a Master. Uh, It's Mark Ritchie II, uh, hosted by Mark Ritchie. Uh, So father and son conversation here. Uh, This is available on the Plus and Pro tiers. Let's take a listen right now.
0: Everybody in this country has some debt. We've all got some debt, whether it's car debt or house debt or or credit card debt or something like that. It's debt we can manage. Do you think anybody in Washington knows how much debt <laughs> the, the, this government can uh, deal with?
1: I'm and, not going to answer that because yeah, I think no, everybody. No, of, has a course, of course you're not. Question. Yeah, it's a,
0: rhetor- it's a rhetorical question. Uh, it's a rhetorical question. So you asked the question: How bad can things get? You know, I was in the pit when somebody came along and told me that the. Uh, Federal Reserve had just raised the interest rate from 22 to 24%. One shot. That's the, <laughs> right. This is the advantage
1: right. of the, speaking of it, being old. I, nobody in this room can remember that. I promise you that. Oh, that's for sure. Uh, can things get worse? Oh, my gosh. Certainly. Oh. So Mark Ritchie Sr. talking with his son on Real Vision, uh, talking about debt. Michael, you and I just talked about this on our Twitter spaces. Uh, in essence, they're discussing the challenges of a rising debt stock. Give us a little bit of context on what some of the risks are there.
2: Well, OK, so this is this is important. And this is why I, I put out the tweet not too long ago saying, be careful what you wish for around this narrative that 60-40 is debt. Because when you have rising debt and uh, spending, which is not ever stopping, and you have higher interest rates, and you have collapsing risk assets, you have a double whammy that only makes the debt load increase even further, right? even in, in the absence of new spending, <clears throat> which is to say that you have, uh, you have to keep on rolling over that debt, which means the cost of capital, the interest uh, ends up being a lot higher. So you can, now you've got to pay for a higher cost of capital. And then again, if risk assets don't rebound, yeah, capital gains receipts are going to be a lot lower you're going to have higher unemployment right. so you're going to have a double whammy on on the deficit right this is the challenge that the fed ultimately has to face right because they've got to stop the inflation monster that you can argue they created they also have to try to buy time for supply chains to resolve themselves but they have to also do so in a very gingerly type of way uh, which is i believe a CFA level 4 term uh, <laughs> a gingerly type of way to make sure that it doesn't cause a real real uh, systemic event for government debt. Now, you can argue that because of the reserve currency, none of that matters. Well, we know that's not true, because look at where we are now.
1: Yeah. Michael, I want to do CFA level six. That's the uh, that's the easiest one. <laughs> yes, because you never have to sit for it. That's uh, right, Mike, Michael, what else is on your dashboard as you look at these markets? Uh, we talked about at the top of the show, obviously, a lot of moving parts, a lot of moving pieces. Uh, tell us what else you're looking at right now.
2: OK, so so let's talk about sentiment for a moment, because, again, this has been a very difficult and frustrating environment. I've gone through severe drawdowns in my funds. And anecdotally, I'll tell you that I had a few emails from shareholders in my funds um, saying that uh, your approach has not worked for a year and a half. Uh, this market's going a lot lower. Uh, I'm going to bomb out of your your strategy. Now, I have seen this before. Mm-hmm. I've seen when the sentiment is so vitriolic, and it's to the point where it's literally insulting me as a portfolio manager when it's a rules-based approach where I am, like everybody else, just watching what the rules are saying as far as to where to allocate for A-tax for JoJo, which again, I've had nasty drawdowns, but the last year and a half has been very unusual. And this year is very clear it's an anomaly in the way stocks and treasures have behaved. Okay. So I've seen that when you have sentiment that's so vitriolic and, and points at the person, not considering the context, that tends to be a major inflection point. Now, I can't prove that other than to say, subjectively, I've gone through that That before,
1: but let's take it. It's it's, the the flame. The flame index.
2: Yeah, right, (laughs) right. But but let's talk about the numbers. So sentiment is is wildly negative, right? And people always say that when you see sentiment being negative on equities, that's a time to buy. It's funny they never seem to apply that to fixed income, because the sentiment is even worse when it comes to bonds, right? Which have gone through an utter crash with this yield spike. I think the market and individuals are underestimating the potential for some positive catalysts. Right, that there could be these surprises on positive. Surprises don't always have to be negative. right? You can't have these positive surprises. OK, so I mentioned one of them earlier, which is there's a positive surprise that the Fed could cool off concerns about a fixed amount of selling of bonds through QT to something that's more variable. Right? That alone would probably be a positive catalyst for stocks and bonds, because I suspect that if you're going to have a, a a reversal, it has to happen in both asset classes because they both went down in the same way. Right, So the initial recovery would probably be on both Treasury sent stocks. Okay, so that's one positive potential catalyst. Another one is, which may explain some of the oil move, is oil could suddenly break down because let's face it, Biden needs a win. Okay, he's going to Saudi Arabia next week. Now, I hear everybody's arguments around capacity. I am fairly confident. Okay, that uh, if if OPEC wanted to find more capacity, they probably can. Okay, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if some kind of backroom deal or something is done. Where Biden basically claims a victory, oil prices break down very suddenly, very sharply. That would cause a breakdown of inflation expectations, cause stocks to rally, yields to drop. Right. Right. The 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 final catalyst, which there are some rumblings about this, okay, which you can say is positive or negative, but at least for equities, it would probably be positive. Is uh, apparently the Biden administration is basically internally saying to themselves, "Let's try to push Zelensky to give up some land to Russia." Now. You can say that that's bearish. You can say that that's not what we want to see. But the reality is, if the expectation is that that does happen, if it does happen, that's going to cause us a a ceasefire, at least for a moment in time. And there will be a relief rally just based on that. So my point is that I keep going back to this line. Opportunity always exists when the crowd thinks it knows an unknowable future. Everybody that I see Mm -hmm. now, everything that I've seen, says that everybody is convinced that this is only going to go straight down. But again, bear markets, as I've said before, make fools of bulls and bears. The final thing I'll say is, it really is true. Like, we're bombed out here as far as the movement beneath the surface. Breath peaked in February of last year. This has already been ongoing for a while. You look at the percentage of the stocks in the NASDAQ composite, they're trading above their 200 day moving average. As of yesterday, only nine point something percent of stocks are above their 200 day moving average. You're pretty much the only time it was lower was uh, post Lehman and at the absolute depths of, of 2020, and not by even by that, by that much. So you have had severe devastation underneath the surface. And I look at that, I say to myself, interesting, You know, what if you get a positive surprise catalyst? And given that the sentiment is so bearish and you've had so much devastation, it seems possible that you could have an enormous rally suddenly out of nowhere, and then maybe ultimately go lower, Okay? because I do believe that housing is going to be a drag for risk sentiment uh, for several, several months and maybe a few years, but not before some kind of real rally happens beforehand.
1: Yeah. I'm taking a look uh, here in the uh, YouTube chat window. Lots of great questions coming in. Uh, Actually, a number of questions that I can see our viewers are thinking along similar lines uh, to me. My next question for you was going to be, tell me what you think is happening from the BOJ. We had a question from Al Shaw from uh, YouTube yen 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 counterparty risk big time i guess not so much a question as a statement obviously uh, but what's going on what's your take with boj obviously uh continuing the ultra accommodative monetary policy continuing yield curve control uh essentially the only central bank in the world uh right now that seems to maintain this ultra accommodative posture what's your take and what's the significance for the broader macro economy and for us equities yeah so so i've i've used this Line before that, uh, we may look back
2: and say that Japan was the biggest story of 2022. All right, in the way that the yen has has behaved here, Um, all the more reason, by the way, for why uh, you've got to get oil prices to very suddenly uh, aggressively go down. Because if the BOJ is not going to stop yield curve control, uh, they've you're going to have some real energy crisis because Japan pretty much imports all of its energy, right? So that I I am certain that that has all kinds of Impacts on bonds, right? Because oftentimes, when you end up having currency uh, manipulation, uh, the transmission mechanism is through buying and selling U.S. Treasuries. So that is a complicating factor. I don't know uh, behind the scenes what they are necessarily thinking. I don't think they themselves know what they're thinking. They're trying to uh, basically choose the lesser of two evils from their standpoint. Either you're going to have higher uh, rates with a highly indebted, indebted economy. Uh, or you're going to have a collapsing currency. You can't have uh, you know one without the other, right? So, I think it does create a destabilizing aspect to uh, risk assets. But again, I, f- I get I get I go to this point that I think a lot of people are aware of this, and it may not be as big of a deal only because we're talking about it. Right? It's already been ongoing for a while. I think there's still bigger risks longer term. But everything from my standpoint is always about the sequence of returns and where sentiment flips. Right? right, so it could very well be that you know if you go with this idea that maybe oil starts to break down, that re- re- relieve some of this inflationary pressure, that maybe yield curve control is not going to be as uh, as severe of an issue for the Bank of Japan, and then the yen rebounds. if Possible?
1: I don't know. Yeah, as you said uh, when we were talking about this on our Twitter Spaces, uh, you can control uh, the yield curve, you can control the currency, but you can't control them both uh, at the same time. I'm looking right now at a three day chart of dollar yen USD JPY uh, up now. You know, again, close to close to the all-time highs uh, at around uh, just a shade under one thirty-one, one thirty-five, one thirty-four. Spot ninety-nine on my screen. Uh, high looks like one thirty-five fifty. You know, obviously, this is dollar dollar strength, yen weakness. Yeah. Uh, you know, the the implications of what you're talking about here, the 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 potential imbalances. Does this seem as though we're setting the stage for something in Japan that looks like? Um, I don't want to be melodramatic in the way I phrase this, but looks like something that could be a a shift in regime potentially to the downside.
2: Yes, we had an Asian crisis before uh, in 1998, I believe. Right? Right. It wouldn't surprise me if that's coming. I've I've made that point before. The way the dollar itself has been behaving, it's almost like there is some kind of sovereign debt crisis incoming. But again, the timing is always what's tricky with us, right? So, I do agree that there is. the behavior is very concerning and could be a catalyst for something much bigger to come no disagreements there the disagreements around when right and yeah maybe it is going to be sooner than not but i you know again juxtapose against all this other sentiment that i'm seeing which is wildly bearish yeah um, it just seems to me that it could get delayed
1: yeah uh, and also, uh, talking of things uh, that I was going to ask about, that our viewers are also thinking about, we, something you alluded to, oil, which is the energy market. Uh, this comes from: uh, Is this it? Oil sentiment was extra bullish until today. Uh, we yeah. should say, just as a little bit of a framework, uh, we are. Let uh, me get. Uh, I've got about 16 charts open on my screen here. Let me get the right one. Uh, so, looking at the Bloomberg Terminal generic first month uh, C L I uh, futures on on basically front month crude W T I on the day. Uh, on the day, down pretty significantly, about
2: 6.5%. Yeah, it could be. And by the way, that sentiment point is, is very valid. I mean, you, uh, it's always interesting to me when when on Twitter in particular, and if you don't follow me, at Lead Report, you should, uh, it's always interesting to me that um, when you end up having people creating hashtags around an investment theme, that ends up being kind of a warning sign to me, that sentiment is, is so extreme, because there's almost a... A cult-like behavior that happens, and I've, I keep on using that point. The, keep on using that line. When an investment becomes a religion, it's time to lose faith. And I use that when it comes to comes to some of these, you know, altcoins. I've used that when it comes to Tesla, and I can maybe somewhat use that in the line when it comes to oil now because you've got. Canadian oil gang as one of those kind of hashtags or one of those trending type of topics. And nearly every single one of these spaces for the last five, six months, everyone's talked about energy. Now, I agree a hundred percent with this idea that there's underinvestment, that there's a longer term secular case be made for commodities relative to equities for the energy sector, relative to everything else, especially tech. But again, I go back to path doesn't uh, path matters more than prediction. When the sentiment is that extreme, at least in the short term. It tends to actually reverse, right? You can still have higher highs, but not without a higher low first, right? So I agree. I don't know if it's it – ter- I don't think it's it in terms of the secular case and the secular momentum. But uh, yeah, I do agree that the sentiment, I think, got very extreme very quickly
1: on commodities. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad.
1: You know, as we have this conversation, I know you mentioned the funds, of course, are rules based. But as you think about this setup and positioning for what you see potentially coming next, or how you think about those range of, of possibilities, uh, what's your take going forward, uh, more broadly speaking, from an asset by asset class basis?
2: Okay, so I'll give you, I'll give you the the ideal scenario that I hope to see, because that would be phenomenal, at least I think, for all three of my funds. And by the way, as much as I have gone through such a severe drawdown. I keep making a point that the best way to avoid a drawdown is after one's already taken place. This goes with this is a fact with any comes to any investment, right? People never want to buy low, but that's often where you get the best performance, and you want to buy dislocations. And this has been unequivocally a dislocation. Okay, so I think the setup is there for a pretty strong short-term meltup. Okay, because again, I go back to the sentiment it's so severe, you get any one of these positive catalysts happening, and suddenly. You know, it's game on for both equities and bonds, both recovering. Okay. Now, um, I think at some point, then, you start to see real risk-off behavior. And real divergence then takes place, meaning treasuries rally in price, drop in yield, and stocks go down, which is really desperately what I need, because that's really what risk on, risk off is about. It's about that inverse correlation during high stress periods in equities. And again, I go back to, I think, the driver of that's going to be housing. So. If we went through this everything bubble correction or crash, however you want to call it, well you're probably going to have an everything bubble recovery to a point, and then I think is when after that you'd see some some real divergence and real cause and effect coming back into play That's not an argument to buy tech that's not an argument to go all into anything um, from an asset allocation perspective unless you're being tactile with a certain approach and strategy like I am, but I do. Believe that when you have this type of a one sided belief, the payout has to be higher on betting the other way. It's not about being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. You can see it everywhere in the sentiment.
1: Yeah. I'm reading through some of the comments. I can see some uh, some skepticism uh, from some folks who've gotten who've gotten really hurt in this in this uh, market uh, for all the reasons that you list listed uh, in terms of uh, the breakdown in historical correlations, the inability to hedge during uh, these times using traditional methods. Uh, what is the nightmare scenario here, and how will you know if it's playing out?
0: Mm.
2: I mean, the real nightmare scenario is that. Uh Oil goes to 300, 400, in which case that's a depression, right? Because the Fed is not, it's not going to be able to do anything about that. Um, and maybe you end up having a war with China, you know, Taiwan, and, and the US getting involved. Who the hell knows, right? There, there are a lot of exogenous shocks that are certainly right. still out there, right? But honestly, I mean, the nightmare scenario is what's happened this year. Because to your very point, diversification hasn't worked, except for commodities. And it's funny, because people are talking about commodities nonstop, and commodities could have been a risk-off asset. No, that's not true. Try to put commodities in any kind of rules-based approach where your defensive posture is commodities, is gold. It doesn't work. Try to go back and do any kind of rules-based approach, even in the 70s, where your defensive posture is shorting. Doesn't work. Is gold. Doesn't work. Is cash. Doesn't work. This year has been a nightmare, because you do any kind of historical work. And you see, it's never happened in history in terms of these relationships being so uh, bizarre in the way they're behaving. So you know, it's not that I'm trying to be evasive with the question, but I think if if people don't think about what's happened this year as not being the nightmare, I don't know what the real nightmare is.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Michael, we've got about 60 seconds left. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with?
2: Yeah. So what I would say is, again, there's a lot of uncertainty, but I go back to, I think there's enough positive surprises out there that could- suddenly shock markets, all markets, equities, and bonds higher, which also means commodities were correct in that period, right? because it's all one big trade at the end of the day. Um, everyone goes through draw- drawdowns, everyone has times where their portfolio, their strategy, their approach is just not working. God knows I'm going through that myself. It doesn't mean that you abandon a strategy or signal because it didn't work in a single roll of the die. People have to get out of this small sample way of thinking. And the one thing I wish people would uh, keep in mind is that drawdowns only matter if you need the money. If you don't need the money, drawdowns don't matter because being an investor means being in something for more than a month, a year, three years. It's about longer term allocation, right? Instead of this kind of, oh, things are down. I got to sell now. Well, who cares? If you don't need the money, if you have a long enough time frame, you'll come back.
1: Yeah. Michael Guyad, obviously troubling times, difficult times. A pleasure to have you here walking us through the way you see the world. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you for watching, everyone. Have a great weekend. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best